Well, here we go. Providence, not a word you hear very often, uh, either inside the church or outside of it. But the doctrine of providence is really important if we're going to live well. I don't know how many of you are still with the daily Bible readings. Now's a good time to join in if you, if you haven't. We're, we're just halfway through the story of Joseph, which occupies a large part of the book of Genesis. And you might have asked yourself, why does the writer of Genesis give so much airtime to this story of Joseph? It is for this reason. The story of Joseph is, before our very eyes, the doctrine of providence. And Genesis is all about beginnings and includes so many of the key doctrines we need to know and understand. Creation, the fall, the trinity, uh, God's uh, coming and rescue, the way God would rescue. It's all there in those opening chapters of Genesis. And before he finishes his introduction, he says you need to understand this as well. You need to understand providence. But why? And what is it? Once, God had created the world. He had a choice to spin the world and to walk away or to spin the world and remain with it, actively spinning, holding, speaking, sustaining, working. Even though we rebelled, God committed himself to remain. To remain involved, to remain active, to remain present in the world he had made. To this day, God remains actively at work in the world he has made. That's what we understand by the doctrine, the term providence. That God remains involved and actively at work in the world he has made. When you think about it, this world has set itself up against God. Much of what happens in our world is utterly opposed to God's will and purpose. The kingdom of this world is set against the kingdom of God. The Bible describes it like this. There is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And in just the same way as light is totally and utterly opposed to the darkness, so the kingdom of light is utterly and totally opposed to the kingdom of darkness. This world is messy, mixed up and mistaken. This world is tragic. This world is most frequently blasphemous towards the God who created it. Yet, the doctrine of providence asserts that God is still sovereign and He's still active in this world, bringing about His purpose despite the chaos, despite the rebellion, despite the tragedy that mars our existence. The doctrine takes its name from a verse we've read in Genesis about God providing, God working, God still working and providing for His world. Here are a few examples then of uh, the way we read throughout the Bible of God still being very active and at work in our world. First of all, God's at work in creation. He hasn't spun it and walked away. In fact, the Bible tells us that this world keeps spinning, not ultimately because a set of gravitational forces that exist in the universe, but this world keeps spinning ultimately because God's Word sustains it. 
He's active in creation. But He's also active through history. It says that God set the times and the dates. God gave opportunity. God enabled people to spread the earth, to inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. It's not random chaos. God is active in history. God is at work through pagan nations and rulers. This is a a remarkable truth that's important for us to understand. When the Assyrians, whose intention was evil whose practice was diabolical, invaded God's people, intent on destruction, God said even then, they were working for His purpose. And then a bit later in Isaiah, if you know the book, a rather benign but very much pagan ruler by the name of Cyrus, God described as his shepherd. It was Cyrus, a pagan ruler, that enabled God's people to come back from exile where they'd been left and abandoned, back to their homeland in order to restore their worship and their life together. How amazing is that? That even a pagan ruler, knowing nothing of God, or a nation uh, bent on everything that is evil, even they are in the hands of God. And unwittingly, unknowingly become part of His purpose. More, God works through the most dreadful evil to accomplish His purpose. Hang in there with me for a moment. This verse at the end of the story of Joseph, begins to hint at the way God works. Joseph said to his brothers, the last time he'd seen his brothers, they'd beat him, thought they'd killed him, then were conscious stricken, so instead of finishing him off, they left him to die of hunger and thirst in a cistern, and then a bit more conscious stricken, sold him as a slave, years ago... You intended to harm me. No defending that. That's exactly what they intended to do and they did. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Listen very carefully, please, to what I'm saying because it's easy for us to go off on a wrong tangent. And we do it all of the time, unwittingly. God is totally and utterly opposed to every evil. He cannot bear evil. He cannot tolerate it. He's totally against it. He is utterly and completely and totally good. He's righteous and pure and holy. And the Bible is littered with references to remind us that this is so. The doctrine of the fall that we looked at a few weeks ago reminds us that the mess that we're in, the evil that we were in, was not part of God's plan. God said, do not eat. And we did. The way things are now is not part of God's purpose. It's not the way He created it to be. In fact, the Bible tells a story of God working tirelessly against all that is evil, rooting it out until the day it will be completely ousted. In fact, that's why Jesus came, the Bible says, not to feed homeless people, not to tell a nice story, but Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. That's why He came. Let's not get comfortable with evil, with any sick notion 
that somehow because God is clever enough, He'll work it out despite the evil in our lives. That's what they said in one of the letters to Paul, the Corinthians. They said, well, if, if God's a God of grace and can forgive us, then the more we sin, the more God can forgive us, and the, the greater sense we'll have of God's blessing us. And Paul said, may it never be. And if we're ever tempted to think of fostering evil in some way, because God will work out his purpose anyway, our hearts are far from him, they're cold towards him. Let's be absolutely clear, God is utterly opposed to the evil that's in our world. And we must always celebrate God's essential goodness or we'll go off on one heresy or another very quickly. Yet, despite that, remarkably, incredibly, wonderfully, God will work even through the most desperate and appalling evil. Evil he neither orchestrated or desired. He'll work through it to bring about his good purpose. The greatest example of this is the cross. I have to undo my sleeves before I perspire and lie in a heap of my uh, own perspiration, if that be all right with you. If it's not, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, But I'm just filling in now while I do this. Think about the cross with me for a moment. Was there anything more evil than the cross? God's Son came from heaven to rescue us, to bring us life and light, and we nailed him to a cross. Not before we beat him and stripped him and then left him there to die. No wonder it went dark. There is not a moment in history more evil than the fact we should take God himself and kill him, nail him to a cross. It was an utterly dark moment. And just weeks later, Peter is right when he says this about the cross. This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. His death was your fault. That's what Peter's saying. You killed the one from heaven. You crucified the one God had sent. All true, they were totally responsible. It was their lies, their false charges, their mock trial that took Jesus to his death. The most heinous crime this world has ever known or seen. Yet, there is another story. There is another perspective, another truth to know and to see and to hold on to at exactly the same time. So we read the full verse. Because of God's foreknowledge, even this most dreadful evil became incredibly part of God's plan. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What irony. What incredible juxtaposition. That at the very moment we killed God, he in his sovereignty chose to use it to bring us life. Who was really in control? A chapter or so later, the early church is praying, and they say this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles, read for Gentiles, evil people, and the people of Israel, uh, people who should have known better, in this city, what to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. It was their choice. It was their agenda. It was their responsibility. They were serving their own ends, trying to meet their own purposes when they nailed Jesus to the cross. But, the very next verse, they did what your power, sorry, that's not the very next verse, let's try this one. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You are incredibly powerful when at the very moment your enemies are doing the worst they can to you, they are actually still serving your own ends. That is sovereign power. That is a God who's always in control. That is a God whose purpose ultimately is never lost, forgotten, or thwarted. Incredible power. Our God is that powerful. Even in the most hideous darkness, in the face of the most monstrous evil, you can still find God working out His purpose with incredible sovereign control. Weaving His divine mosaic and using threads of evil and wickedness also in the tapestry. It is a most incredible thing. That's why the doctrine of providence is so important. Because it offers magnificent hope in the face of this world's utter hopelessness. Can anything good come out of this utter tragedy? Yes. Because God can weave His purpose through it. Hallelujah. From a human perspective, God dying on a cross, surrounded by the mockery of evil men, with the heavens full of the devil's taunts. Everything was hopeless. When in fact, as Jesus died on the cross, it was the most hope-filled day of the whole of history. If you could see it, but from a different perspective. We do not have to live with human perspective. And the doctrine of providence says that we don't have to. That our sovereign God will weave his purpose until, as Habakkuk put it, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. What a great day that will be. It's with this utter confidence that Paul wrote what's become a very key verse in the New Testament. A verse that you'll know well, a verse that you'll hear misquoted as often as you hear it quoted accurately. A verse that you'll hear misunderstood as often as you hear it uh, explained in its context. It was this sheer confidence that led the Apostle Paul to write these words. We know, we are certain, we live with confidence, with hope, this is absolute, certain about what? That in all Things, good things, evil things, happy things, sad things, disappointments, failures, successes, regrets. In all things, God works. No, it's much more important than that. It's much more important than that. That God works through these things. Despite their horror. God works what? God works for the good, the well-being, the flourishing of those who, say it with me, of those who love Him. Which is why some people that I know who've gone through the most horrendous things in their lives are the most beautifully alive people on earth. Because this verse is true. But be very careful. It's not true for everybody. It doesn't say that. This verse does not say, all things are good. And this verse does not say, that here is a promise for all people. 
You can live, and this is the saddest part of the doctrine of providence. You can live the whole of your life excluding yourself from the work of God for you because you choose not to love him and to be called according to his purpose. You can choose to live outside the God who will weave his purpose through all things. And like every promise in the Bible, there's a huge challenge, isn't there? When things go wrong with us, we are ever so quick to point the finger. And we usually point the finger at at God. The person that said it was the most honest one here. We all do it. We hear one another doing it. Deep in our hearts, we point the finger at God. We blame Him. We begin to think about abandoning Him. And, we, and, in, and suddenly we move right out of this doctrine of providence. The better question might be this. Not in an angry way. God, what good are you working out of this? Stamping our feet like, how dare you? Do this in my life, as if he was responsible. And remember the doctrine of the fall, he isn't. Instead of blaming God, we say, God, how can I love you through this? At the moment we should be loving God most, we abandon him. At the moment we should cling to him with both hands, arms, legs, feet, wrap ourselves around him, we let go of him and walk away as if it's his fault. Listen to the verse. It is love for God that unlocks the door to God's purpose in every situation. When we choose not to love him, we're locked and we're trapped. And sometimes even as Christians, we can stay that way for many years. Let's try and zero all this down. What does this mean in real life? What does it mean in my life? Not a doctrine up there, but what does it mean tomorrow in everyday life? Well, that's what the story of Joseph does. It gets very real about how it works. Joseph went from being the youngest son in a shepherding family, a nobody, to becoming prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the globe at that time, at a significant moment of economic crisis where he was able to save many lives. He went from victim to victor. And he saw God, in an incredible way, work out his purpose in the midst of the most monstrous evil that he had to face. It's the doctrine of providence that frees you and me from remaining as victims to move through to God's purpose in our lives, despite the circumstances. The circumstances become irrelevant because our God is much bigger than them. And if he can turn the cross into something good, then he can turn the bad things in your life and mine into something good as well. That's the God he is. And moving through to God's victory is in the end the only other victory that matters. You may be tempted to win the X Factor. The only good thing about not being a gathering tonight is that you can watch the X Factor results live. And some of you will, and some of you will enjoy it. What was I saying? Has anyone got any idea what I was saying? 
You're hoping it's a rhetorical question, aren't you? Because you're going, no, what is he on about? He's been going 20 odd minutes now. I've got no idea what he's on about. I want to move from victim to victor in my circumstances, don't you? This isn't some prosperity rubbish. This is about in the midst of pain and suffering, discovering God's purpose. Discovering that God's there. I've just taken my watch off. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. You're quite right. So how are you going to move from being victim to to victim? How did did Joseph do that? How did Joseph do that? Well, I want to share just as we uh, uh, close four things that I think Joseph would say to us if he was here. Because he knew what it was to be trapped in his circumstances. He knew what it was to, to come from an incredibly dysfunctional family. Humanly, he had no hope. He knew what it was for his brothers to hate him, to be left for dead, to be sold into slavery. He knew what it was to be falsely accused of raping the chief executioner's wife. I mean, the chief executioner's wife. What a wife to choose. He knew what it was to be put into prison for something he hadn't done and left there abandoned twice. Yet when we meet him in chapter 50, he says, what does he say in chapter 50? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Because it was so obvious, it was a rhetorical question, because it was so obvious that despite all of that, he had ended up as God's man in God's place, at God's time, for God's purpose, glory and honour. I want that, don't you? That's the God we serve, who works in those kind of ways as we look to Him and as we trust Him. And because of that, the next verse, verse 20, it says that many lives were saved, not least those of His brothers and His father who would otherwise have perished in a global famine. No one could dispute that Joseph had soared to God's purpose despite despite it all. And we long for that, don't we? We long for that. But so often I feel trapped by my circumstances, by my situation, by the things that come to me. We can live as victims. And God's providence says you don't need to live like that. God works his purpose, even in the midst of all kinds of difficulty, even evil. What was the secret? Well, what would Joseph say? He'd teach us a thing or two. Well, I'm going to share four things, but if you strip it all away, I think it's this. I think it's this. Joseph understood that verse that Paul was going to write centuries later when Paul says, in all things God works for good for those who love him. Joseph knew that. So what happened? When he was in the pit and he'd been left for dead, he could have walked down on God, walked down on his faith. He didn't. The Bible uh, implies that he loved God anyway. Why do I say that? Because when he was sold as a slave in Egypt and began to work for a pagan master in that house, the Bible says that Joseph was acutely aware that the Lord was where? With him. With him. Joseph had still stayed with God. No question about God remaining. The big issue was with Joseph. Stick with it. Joseph was there. Then he has to flee from his, for his life from uh, Potiphar's trophy wife that tried to seduce him. And he runs out half naked into the street. Better to do that than to walk out on God through sexual temptation or any other temptation for that matter. Then he gets chucked into prison. I wanted to say, the Lord is where? With him. Joseph's aware of God's presence. Why? Because at each stage, Joseph loved God Anyway, it's the hardest thing on earth. But he did it. He loved God anyway. And so Paul would write years later, you know God works good in all things to those who 
love him. Those who love him. Joseph loved him. So what kept Joseph's love alive? Four things very quickly. One, sorry, he loved God through it all. Number one. Okay, not number one. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. But through our love for God, we keep our lives open to the work of God. When hard times come, one of the first things that go with it is our loss of love for God. Is that not true? The very thing we need. Our love for God keeps our lives open to the work of God. Here they are, number one. The dark times are what you travel through. Psalm 23, the most well-known psalm, the place that people turn to in times of trouble the world over, even uh, 2,000, 3,000 years after they were written. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can love God through it. Even though I walk through The dark times are pictured as a valley, not somewhere I have to stop and stay and live, but something, yes, I need to walk through. But I will arrive at the other side if I keep traveling. We must keep traveling. And love for God is what keeps us traveling. When we bail out on God, we stop traveling. Spiritually, we sit down there in that dark place. And the tragedy is sometimes in a dark place, we've sat down in a dark valley and we've never got going again. And it's five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years since we stopped in that dark valley and we're still there. We were only meant to pass through. We've got to keep travelling. But we can say to ourselves, I can't do it, I, I can't go on, I'm, I'm not going to make it, this is too much. And that's not to diminish anything of the reality of the darkness and the intensity of the pain. I see it every day in pastoring an ordinary church like ours. It's not to minimize that. So somehow with the love of God, we've got to keep moving. We've got to keep traveling. I cycled a lot as a teenager, traveling um, at least 10,000 miles to express my undying love for my future wife. And I, I know, I know, I was touched. And, and, and I, I would cycle home and ju- just before, lots of ups and downs. This is Wales, you know, none of this flat stuff. In it. You know, not weedy cycling like you lot do. This was proper cycling for grown-ups. You go down hills and up them again. Anyone know what a hill is? It's like a big, big steep thing that goes up. And uh, just near our house, there was a big steep hill that went up. In fact, every way to get to our house was a big steep hill. So you cycle up the top of this hill. It's late at night. It's dark and it's usually wet and I'm trying to get home and I get to the top of this hill totally exhausted all you can do is just keep going you've got no energy, no nothing and, and as you turned at the top of this hill uh, it went into a very dark, the darkest part of the journey there were trees on one side of the road and woods on the other, spooky and there's only one single street light and 99 times out of 100 as I turned the corner and passed the light the light would go out <laughs> if that interests you, you need Nigel Head's evening, Nino, Nino I never once stopped to investigate or ask the question why. The only thing I knew is the darker it got, the faster you keep going. Hey, the dark valley is not somewhere to stay, is it? Keep travelling. The love for God keeps us travelling. And how do you keep travelling there? You discover, secondly, that the shepherd is there, right in the darkness. The incredible thing for Joseph, he understood it didn't matter whether it was a pit, a dungeon, or working for a, for a pagan uh, nation far away from his homeland, God was there with him. 
Jonah put it like this inside the belly of a whale. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. He was there in the most unlikely place from the depths of the grave. I called for help and he listened to me. He was there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, awaiting execution in a Nazi concentration camp, spoke of the miracle, the wonder of God being there by gracious powers, so wonderfully sheltered, confidently waiting, come what may. We know that God is with us night and morning. Never fails to meet us each new day. It's what Isaiah called, or what the Lord called through the prophet Isaiah, the treasure of the darkness. We think there's no treasures to be found in the darkness. We hate it, and rightly, perhaps we should. Darkness comes from evil places. We should stand against it in every way. But there's a treasure of the darkness. When all that you would normally cling to is stripped away, when all the security that you normally have has gone, to discover that God is still there is the greatest treasure in the darkness. Joseph discovered that many times. And Joseph learned to look what, for what God was doing. Really hard, isn't it? For 20 years, maybe. God didn't seem to be doing anything. But Joseph stuck with it. It was by faith he looked to see what God was doing. One day he would understand it. When the brothers came to him, he could see, he understood it. He said, look, you meant this incredible evil towards me. God had a better plan, a better idea. My God's so big, he weaved his better plan despite your terrible plan. And look, here we are, boom, boom. He could see it. But for a long time, he couldn't. Don't walk out on God's plan just because you can't see it yet. God is faithful in the darkness. He's there. Let that be enough for you until you see it unfold. And then finally, and then finally, the book of Joseph ends in a lovely way. It ends with them thinking about going home. It ends with the realisation that actually Egypt wasn't their home. Although Egypt had brought for Joseph great success, it had also brought tremendous pain and sadness. And in the latter years of his life, Joseph began to think of home. They were aliens and strangers in Egypt. Egypt was not the end, not the land where they would stay. And at the end of this chapter, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. He promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Egypt had been their home, but only for a while. It was not the place in the end that they would settle. The place where they would settle in the end was a land flowing with milk and honey. And these moments at the beginning of Genesis, teaching us the big things about God, are rich in imagery. This is not our home. Because the best is yet to come. And as Joseph looked forward to the land that his children and grandchildren and grandchildren and grandchildren and grandchildren grandchildren would inherit, we look forward to the land that we will inherit. This is not our home. 
And so for us in this world of such darkness and suffering and tragedy, where the darkness closes in sometimes and seems so overwhelming, the doctrine of providence says this, God will work his purpose until he gets you home. How cool is that? How cool is that? God will not stop work in all this mess and misery until he gets us home. The best is yet to come. These people, they're just strangers and aliens wandering around in an earth that's not their own. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. I'll tell you a story just as we close. I'm sure I've shared this in different contexts before, but it's worth sharing again, I trust. Jesus taught at the wedding. The very first miracle he did was at a wedding, wedding in Cana. And uh, they'd run out of water, uh, sorry, they'd run out of wine. So Jesus got all the big pitchers of water, massive gallons of water, and he turned it into wine. And the guests said, this is amazing. The best wine is now. You wouldn't serve the best wine until now. You'd keep serve the best wine at the beginning when people were sober enough to enjoy it. And then when they didn't really care what they were drinking, then you'd give them the vinegar or something and leave them to it. But Jesus turns the water into this fabulous wine. The best is yet to come. I can remember as a young teenager attending a service to celebrate the golden wedding of my grandparents. Humanly for them, the future looked incredibly bleak. My grandfather was already suffering with Parkinson's and relentlessly it was robbing him of almost every control over his own body. My grandmother was and would continue to be his uh, chief carer. Life got harder and more demanding for them both. Even communication was so often stolen between the two of them. At their golden wedding, the pastor chose as his text the story of the wedding at Cana. It was the most weird choice. You see, my grandparents had been lifelong members of the temperance movement. Both of them, through personal conviction and life experience, my grandmother's father was an alcoholic, had been utterly, totally teetotal all their lives. So turning water into wine was not their cup of tea. Sorry to mix the metaphors, but you get... Where is this guy going? It was inspirational. I was 12, 13. I remember it to this day. That's how much it spoke into my life. For at a service where I thought the only possibility was to look back and give thanks, at the end of their lives, when humanly it was all falling apart, he chose to stand up on God's word and preach about Jesus saving the best wine until last. Not too many years after that that my grandfather died. At his funeral, the same pastor recalled a conversation he'd had with my granddad, who then, confined to a wheelchair, locked in his own world, almost unable to speak at all, spoke these incredible words of faith in the midst of his suffering. He whispered into this pastor's ear, one day I'll dance. One day I'll dance. Life was unbearably difficult after my grandfather died. My grandmother had given a whole, this whole period of her life in caring for him. She was lost and bereft, and she lost her own health, her mobility, and independence. But now, they dance together. They dance together. Best wine to last. The doctrine of providence, the doctrine of the work of God, brings us the greatest hope in the world. His work is not over. And the best wine is still to come. Therefore, 
We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Yet inwardly, sort of outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, what are we going to do? We'll fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we 